0: So, well, Yes? One of, in my mind, the most fascinating archetypes in film, with its long history stretching back, likely to antiquity, is the femme fatale. I was absolutely introduced to this, as I was most elements of noir, through the Tracer Bullet stories in Calvin and Hobbes. I mean, it is a perfect introduction to the genre for a child. Right, it's incredible. Anytime Calvin is in trouble and wants to frame it as somebody else, he pretends to be a noir detective (laughs) complaining about the Durkin's dame and talking about his mom as some broad who walks into the room with a case. I think the femme fatale is just, like, such a perfect representation of male fear of female power. Yeah. And it's, like, fascinating to look into the misogynistic history and what it represents anthropologically. But also, they're just fun. They're just, I mean, you think about Double Indemnity when we did that this spring, and like Barbara Stanwyck just running circles around Fred McMurray. And one of the most famous, of course, Mary Astor in the Maltese Falcon. Oh, sure. Who I would say like more than Barbara Stanwyck even starts with the appearance as an innocent figure. So I am curious, we will obviously dig into the power of the femme fatale with this week's film, but who are some of your favorites, you know, in the history of femme fatale, but also looking more into the present, the recent past? Yeah, um, I really just pulled answers from the last like 35 years. Okay. to keep Keep it contemporary. Obviously, when you tell me modern femme fatale, my number one thought is Anne Hathaway and Serenity. It's a perfect performance in an utterly contemptible and yet amazing film. You know I am one at most two watches from declaring that movie a masterpiece. And that's one of the reasons we can't watch it again. I think you are overestimating that. I think it's going to be a Phantom Menace moment where you watch it again, expecting to love it, and you will still be like, no, this is bad. It's just a lot more fun than Phantom Menace. I don't know. I mean, I've now seen Succession, so Jeremy Strong playing a character called the Rules is more fun. That for me. is like you will get more on the rewatch for that, but it's just I think it is so weird in ways that don't work. It's hard to describe it as a masterpiece. We got to just do it. We got to do it on the. Podcast. I know. We got to talk about how Anne Hathaway has sex with Matthew McConaughey to get him to murder her husband, Jason Clark. She, though, is, like, the, the highlight of that film. She knows exactly what movie she's in and is incredible. She also gives another great femme fatale performance that was panned at the time in her portrayal of Selena Kyle in The Dark Knight Rises. I don't... Was that panned at the time? I thought people were just like, eh, it's fine. Maybe. I can't remember exactly. I think it was in the middle of the Anne Hathaway hate wave. I mean, it's the same year as Les Mis. Okay, so it is one of the things that's, like, starting the turn on Anne Hathaway. Yeah. But I think her performance is very good. I think Selena, She's good. I think scored. Selena Kyle represents some of the, like, best femme fatale characteristics. Because the level of insanity that you can associate with the role lends itself to a lot of creative portrayals. Dating back to Eartha kit, but... Michelle Pfeiffer, of course, representing the peak Selena Kyle. I mean, the weirder femme fatale thing in Dark Knight Rises is Marion Cotillard as Talia Al Ghul. What a, a, a double femme fatale movie. And you get yeah. both the reformed and the unreformable. Irredeemable. Right, exactly. Cotillard gets to do it for Nolan twice because she does it in Inception, too. Huh. Honestly, she's great. I love her so much. She's such a weird lady. She's so... Str- her career is very interesting. Yeah. Um, she also, of course, is a 9-11 truther. Wait, really? I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. I've not kept up with her. There were all these jokes, because she's in the Assassin's Creed movie with Michael Fassbender, and there were all these jokes when it came out about, like, yeah, Marianne Coneyard thinks this movie is a documentary. Oh my god, I totally forgot about that. Actually, I don't know if I ever knew that, but... Have you seen the Assassin's Creed movie? No, but I would do it for this. (laughs) Me too. I was just thinking the same thing. Uh, We're in kind of a, like, ridiculous movie run, and I'm obsessed. Yeah, it's fun. That's what happens when you take more control of the schedule, and it's not a bad thing. (laughs) Uh, I love absurd movies. Some other ones I thought of. Of course, Jessica Rabbit. That also top of my list. Yeah. Well, she's more of a deconstruction of a femme fatale than a femme fatale. Right. She's not bad. She's just drawn that way. Right. I think Jessica Ramba represents male fear of attractive women without ascribing it uh, evil intention. Whereas if you want to ascribe it evil intention, you have Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. You also have Glenn Close in Cruel Intentions. You have Sharon Stone in Casino. <laughs> you have Demi Moore in Disclosure. You have, I assume, Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct <laughs> 2. That one I have not seen. Yeah, Uh I really got to watch Basic Instinct. Let me tell you, it has the problems that you know it has. It also kind of rocks. I. It's hard. No, like with her autobiography that came out to watch a lot of movies that Sharon Stone was in. Yes. Because she was so poorly treated. As far as I know, Casino holds up. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm not aware of any dirt on Casino in that way. If you want to just watch Sharon Stone having a good time, she's in a Sam Raimi western called The Quick and the Dead, which is Sharon Stone is like the top gunslinger in a town, and the town is having its regular, like, shoot-off tournament, where it's like a shoot-to-kill quick-draw tournament. And it's like Sharon Stone, pre-Titanic Leo DiCaprio, Gina Hackman is like the mean guy who runs the town. Wow. I have not heard of this movie. It rocks. Ugh. She's so good. She's rocks. She rocks, yeah. Uh, some other people I thought of. Obviously, we've got Cape Blanchett in Nightmare Alley. <laughs> what a weird movie. <laughs> As The Hypnotist. I wish I liked it more. I gotta watch the 40s version, which is like 30 minutes shorter, which is what that new story needs. Yeah, I really wish I could. I, it was a movie I really wanted to love. And then the other one, a movie that you definitely have not seen, is uh, my girl Becky Ferguson in Reminiscence. I have not seen that movie. I don't think I know what it is. It's not a good movie. You probably saw the trailers for it in the summer of, I think, 21 or maybe 22. It was the, like, future flooded Miami. Oh. Sci-fi noir. With Hugh Jackman. Yeah. It's not good, but it is bad in the way that I enjoy bad big budget sci-fi. Fair. I mean, we're like... It is leaning hard enough into, like, the noir conventions that it's like, it is fun to watch them do this, even if it's not totally working. I can see that. And Rebecca Ferguson can play mysterious and hot so well. That is very true. I was looking recently at a list of, like, best femme fatale, and I think there's a lot that, a lot of lists written by people that don't truly understand that a femme fatale is more than just, like, a mean woman who uses sexuality. Yeah, no. Because one of them listed Lara Croft, and it's like, a femme fatale is not just a woman who is good at fighting. No, it it typically is not a woman who is good at fighting. She gets someone else to do the fighting. Right, it's like, the point of the femme fatale is using the societal expectations of women to exploit men to negative ends. Which, cool. <laughs> Which, always cool. You know what, Sharon Stone, also in Total Recall, kind of a femme fatale. <laughs> she just plays it so well she does a great job because i think i was trying to think of other deconstructions of the femme fatale that are as good as jessica rabbit and i don't think they exist no that's it bobby z got it like she is the perfect representation of the like femme fatale as tragic figure who uses her like powers over men for good because she is actually in love. Simakas is just, like, the ultimate, I think, example of just, like, highs and lows of a career because he's made multiple movies that I think are basically perfect and also some of the worst things I've ever seen in my life and not in a fun way like Big Shark. Yeah. Who framed Roger Rabbit as a, if not perfect and near-perfect film? Back to the Future too for me. Well, Back to the Future as well. And, like, Romancing the Stone, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Like, he's got great stuff. I personally think (laughs) Who Framed Roger Rabbit might be his best, but that movie I do have a much stronger nostalgic connection to. And the fact that it's largely about um, American car culture destroying uh, public Public infrastructure. And then on the other end of his career, you've got, like, The Witches and Pinocchio. Right. Just utter failures that I can't even bring myself to watch. Beowulf kind of good. Interesting that that movie did kind of turn Grendel's mother into a femme fatale. It kind of (laughs) does. But I think that's also just uh, society's expectations of Angelina Jolie. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Where, like, her performance just kind of reads that way. And I think that's also what the issue with the Tomb Raider ending up on that list is. But it's it's funny. I was thinking through, like, directors who use this trope today. And so you've got, like, Zemeckis has, you've got... It's definitely a part of the Nolan repertoire, What I was thinking a lot of our other, even like kind of noir-y guys don't really, like there's no sort of like femme fatale role really in Fincher, except for Gone Girl. Yeah. And, you know, this movie that we're talking about this week is produced by John Landau, who is James Cameron's producer. And I was like, you know, Cameron's got all these like spy-y, action-y movies But he doesn't really do the femme fatale. But of course, for James Cameron, like, women are queens to be celebrated. Single mothers save the day. Right. James Cameron takes it to the other extreme. Yeah. I think that the trope, due to its problematic nature, has kind of fallen out of favor. Which I understand, but it's also fun. I understand it is fun, and I think it can be done in a way that reads as interesting and provides good commentary. Serenity! Serenity, and honestly, a bit of this week's movie. (laughs) Okay, well then we should get into it, because I have so much to talk about. Alright, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast, just like Dick Tracy would investigate. Uh, We're looking into the mystery of whether Hollywood romance actually makes any sense. And are these people actually dateable, or even people... It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at the 1990 comic strip adaptation Sensation. Dick Tracy. I don't know if I would go so far as to say Sensation, but it has left an interesting cultural legacy. I mean, certainly everybody was aware of it. It had 100% consumer recognition but not uh, 100% box office recouping. It did okay. It would have done fine if they had not marketed it as though it was going to be Batman. Yeah. I mean, production budget, they definitely made it back. Right, exactly. And it's a Warren Beatty movie, so the production budget certainly ballooned. But they more than doubled their budget through marketing. Which was an interesting choice on Disney's part. Yeah, like they were doing all kinds of stuff, right? They They put stage shows in the theme parks. They were putting out TV specials about the history of Dick Tracy to raise awareness of the brand. There were McDonald's toys for this movie, which is ridiculous. Did they... I know Madonna used Blonde Ambition, her tour, to sort of promote the movie. Did they put money into that? Did Disney? I don't know. From what I've read, that was her idea. Well, I believe that. I just feel like that would have been their best investment of all. There is just like a stunning amount of merchandising around this movie. They released three different albums tied into it. A Madonna album, the original songs album, and the score album, all as separate discs. And like that more than anything. Again, there are cost overruns when you hire Warren Beatty. That's going to be part of the deal. Didn't they like I was re- I read the Wikipedia article. Didn't they build in a mechanism where like cost overruns would come out of Warren Beatty's money specifically? Yes, because Reds had gone so over budget and so over time that they were like, okay, you can make another movie. And this is his first movie in a decade. It's the first movie that he's directing since Reds. And they're like, we'll let you do this, but you're paying for it. Which I think is a very fair move on their part. Right, but that's again where, like, the financial miss of this movie is more at the feet of the desire to make it the biggest movie of the year. I think if they had just, like, released the movie as a movie, it would have been more interesting, almost. It's funny that, like, Batman comes out, and there's the ramp-up to Batman as well. This cultural sensation of the moment that the Batman movie was coming out. And we sometimes talk about, like, studios taking the wrong lessons from a movie. And this movie was very much in development before Batman opened. But the way they marketed it, the way they approached it was... Batman is this huge hit. Clearly, the audience has a massive appetite for pulp heroes of the 1930s and 40s, for noiry detectives. And so, this movie gets marketed as the next Batman. They hire Danny Elfman to score it because of his Batman score. Honestly, to me, the studios took away the right lessons, which is like make weird movies. Well, sure, but I know that that is, like, this is a situation where it was kind of a miss in the other direction, where the lessons learned from Batman Begins led to a whole series of, like, clone movies. And then there's the lessons learned from this, which is make the villains hard to look at because of how ugly the prosthetics are. Okay, but it's not just Dick Tracy, which again is, like, in development before people have seen Batman. They also make... The Phantom in 96, they make The Shadow in 94. Like, The Mask is part of this tradition. There is this run of 30s-style noir superhero detectives that are all made in the wake of Batman. It's like, what if all of our rising stars played pulp detectives from 60 years ago? I mean, of those movies, this one clearly had the longest legacy. Yeah. Because I forgot those other ones were made. Except The Mask, obviously. A movie I've never seen. It's okay. And then there's this. (laughs) And then there's Dick Tracy, based on the comic strip by Chester Gould, which Gould wrote from 1931 until sometime in the 70s or 80s. And Dick Tracy does still run. There is still a cartoonist who makes Dick Tracy comics. I tried to find some of the old Chester Gould stuff to read, but the libraries did not have it, and I didn't look that hard online. Uh, did you know that there was a crossover with Little Orphan Annie? No, but I'm not astonished. I think Dick Tracy has to rescue Little Orphan Annie for his friend Oliver Warbucks. They should have made that movie. That would be great. This movie comes out right around the same time that Annie 2 is on Broadway. The Annie sequel. Oh my god, I forgot that existed. I think it was called Annie Warbucks or something. She does maintain the title Little Orphan Annie for a long time after being adopted. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Maybe that's because orphans are boys. And so they want to really make it clear like, this is a girl, but she's also an orphan. Mark, what was your background with Dick Tracy? What was your experience of watching this movie? So I was aware that the movie existed largely due to my knowledge of the career of Madonna more than the history of (laughs) like films based off of 30s pulps. Because Madonna's film career I find very interesting. And. It almost always comes down to her being cast correctly in terms of whether the performance is good. And I would say in this movie, she is cast very well. And I really enjoy her performance of Breathless Mahoney. She campaigned for this role. She worked for scale for it. And ended up making (laughs) $35,000. Yeah. So probably not worth it to her. But she did get some great songs that are in her like standard repertoire. Yeah, I mean, she, she got paid $35,000, and Stephen Sondheim wrote songs for her. Right, which that alone is worth a lot of money. Yeah. And I think she was my favorite part of the movie, because it's Madonna singing songs by Stephen Sondheim. So really, my favorite parts of the movie are when Mandy Patinkin and Madonna are performing Stephen Sondheim. Sure, you know what? <laughs> Makes sense. I enjoyed the movie. Like I said, some of the villains... Went too far into the uncanny valley and became kind of difficult to perceive. Oh, see, I love seeing tiny face and flat top and lips. Mumbles. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles is drifting dangerously close to Rain Man. It is. It's not great. Um, James Caan just showing up, great, and then getting blown up in a car bomb. Um, uh, interesting reference. They tried to get Gene Hackman to show up for a role like that, and he would not. It is interesting that he might be the most recognizable one. And I, like, wasn't expecting a Robin character. Wasn't expecting Dick oh, Tracy to adopt a ward. I don't know anything about Dick Tracy, the character. So I also did not know anything about Dick Tracy as of, like, two weeks ago. Um, you wanted us to do this on the show. You were like, we gotta do Dick Tracy. And I had previously had long-standing vague plans with my mom to watch Reds. So I watched Reds, and then I was like, what if I watch the other Beatty movies? And I didn't make it to Rules Don't Apply, which is his 2016 Howard Hughes movie. But I did watch, obviously, Dick Tracy, and then Heaven Can Wait, and Bullworth. So I've seen all the Beatty-directed movies, except for Rules Don't Apply. I also then, to prepare for this, I was like, I should know something about Dick Tracy. So I spent the last week watching the RKO Dick Tracy B-films from the 1940s. Which I did say, do not watch all of them. No, you told me not to watch the serials from the 30s. Okay, I did know they were different. Yeah, so in the 1930s, there's a series of serial adventures, which I've now seen some clips of, and they look pretty good, so I probably will watch them. A series of serial adventures starring Ralph Byrd as Dick Tracy. In the 1940s, RKO got the rights to make feature films, and they make two movies with Morgan Conway as Tracy, uh, those movies are Dick Tracy and Dick Tracy versus Q-Ball. Then they bring Ralph Byrd back for Dick Tracy's Dilemma because audiences are annoyed that they're like, Ralph Byrd is Dick Tracy, who's this other guy? And so Bird is the lead of Dick Tracy's Dilemma and Dick Tracy meets Gruesome. And then they make a TV show again in the 50s. So I watched the two Morgan Conway movies and the first Ralph Bird movie, Dick Tracy's Dilemma. I have Dick Tracy meets Gruesome recorded and will watch it because Boris Karloff plays Gruesome. Wow. They're all like an hour. So I've just been watching them after my wife goes to bed. And what's happened is over the last week, I've just been putting these things in and most of them aren't good. I think Dick Tracy versus Q-Ball is good. But what I found when I was watching Beatty's Dick Tracy last night is like, oh, somewhere along the way, I developed opinions about the Dick Tracy characters and about who they should be and how to do them right. Yeah, see, I didn't have any of that going in. So, I love seeing Dick Tracy style villains like Flat Top because I'm familiar with Cue Ball or Split Face. Mark, right now, I need you to Google Coffee Head from the Dick Tracy comics. Oh, God. C O F F Y H E A D. Hold on. It's being slow. Oh, there he is. He's <laughs> just a guy whose head kind of looks like a cup of coffee. <laughs> I love him. So,. I came into this, for example, knowing that Dick Tracy villains look ridiculous and have names that match. I actually was glad that the movie clarified the role of his ward, because in the RKO movies, I think he lives in like a boarding house, and there just is this kid called Junior running around conducting dumb investigations of his own. And I was always like, what Junior? Like, who is this kid? So I was glad to now learn that he is in fact adopted by Tracy. It is interesting that Tracy does not seem to have a lot of money and is now a single father. Not something you see a lot. I thought what was really striking watching all of these movies, including this one, is that Tracy is a cop. And a lot of the detectives of the 30s and 40s, I mean, even going back to Sherlock Holmes, are, like, pointedly not cops. So, like, Sherlock Holmes, Batman, like, The Shadow, like, all these guys were not part of the police force in part because... There was a sense at the time that the police were either dumb or corrupt. And so if you needed real justice, you had to go to somebody outside. And I think it's really fascinating that Chester Gould, who was a pretty conservative guy, his entry into that genre is somebody who is a part of the system. But also, it is interesting because I would say almost every other cop is still corrupt or incompetent. So it is still... The, like, singular figure who can save the day. He just, in this instance, is in the machine, while still operating largely outside of its rules. So, what did you think of the movie overall? You said uh, you liked Madonna. I enjoyed the movie. I liked Al Pacino as the villain. Well, he got an Oscar nomination for it. My absolute favorite part of the movie is when this murderous man, Al Pacino, who has committed murder, is like, oh no, he's gonna pin us for kidnapping, a federal crime. And it's like, bro, your entire career has been federal crimes. What are you talking about? Yeah, but they hadn't done it in front of Dick Tracy. And Dick Tracy was watching them carry Tess away. Yeah, okay. It's still, it's just like, why is the federal line being invoked here? It was so good. I found it so funny. His portrayal is bizarre. I liked how he was kind of a bumbling idiot and yet the most powerful. It was a fun time. It's funny how committed he is to making the nightclub show excellent. I think that is honestly the most respectable thing about this character is he's like, I am a crook. I run a criminal enterprise. He murders a guy to take over his casino. He murders a guy to take over his illegal underground casino. And he says, these people are going to have a- show. Because he is directing the musical numbers. He is as strict as like the choreographer of showgirls. It's like watching a Russian ballet teacher. He is tearing down their confidence. He is overly demanding. He is trying to set the pitch while he can't sing. It's so funny. For me, far and away, the best thing about this movie is just everything about how it looks. Yes. I mean... It's like so refreshing to watch movies that aren't realistic. This is like the last big Hollywood production to have no digital work done in it. It's just all like wacko prosthetics, these like painted backdrops, and like it doesn't even look like a comic. it looks like it's it's more it's more comic than a comic right. They don't do any. I feel like if you want to capture the look of a comic, you have to do more stylization of the shots. Like, lines have to be less straight. There has to be almost a blurry color, like, painted element, which you don't get. So the color thing they did that I think is incredible is they said, if you think about, like, basic comic printing, if they're printing comics on, like, newsprint or whatever, they're not going to have shades. So, like, there is one shade of green in this whole movie. There is one shade of red in this whole movie. That is so cool. The goal was to do the whole thing with seven distinct colors. That is a great choice. And so the whole thing looks amazing. There are so many shots where there's like one real element, like the warehouse, and everything else is just like painted backdrops or foregrounds that are just the most vibrant thing you've ever seen in your life. And purposefully fake looking. Yeah, they're like at weird angles. You don't come to Dick Tracy to get a slice of life. No, which Dick Tracy himself complained about. What? <laughs> so, this is, this is related to the story of the production of the movie. Do you want to start at the beginning or start at the end? Um, let's start at the beginning. Oh, okay. Let's just go through this. So, Dick Tracy premieres in the comics in, like, 1931, written and drawn by Chester Gould. It's wildly popular. Tracy is a smash hit at the time when newspaper comics could be smash hits. There's the serials. In the 1930s, starring Ralph Byrd. So within a decade, Tracy has made the jump to film. In the 1940s, there are the RKO films uh, with Morgan Conway and then with Ralph Byrd. In the 50s, there's the TV show. Around that time is when Tracy's iconic wrist radio comes in, around the 1950s, in consultation with the guy who invented walkie-talkies. Cool. From there, you know, there's not another filmed adaptation of Tracy after the 50s until this one. By the 1970s, Warren Beatty was looking towards directing and, at the beginning, wanted to make a Dick Tracy movie. So even before Heaven Can Wait, he was like, this is something I want to do. Because Warren Beatty is an old man. (laughs) Indeed he is. It's the thing you have to remember with him. And at that point, the rights were already held by somebody else. And so over the course of the 70s and the early 80s, there are a few different pitches for a Dick Tracy movie floating around. At one point, Tom Mankiewicz wrote one, because they were like, you wrote Superman, make another comics movie. But Chester Gould insisted on creative control over that. Nobody wanted to do that. Universal had the rights in the early 80s. They wanted John Landis to direct it, and they tried to get Clint Eastwood to play Tracy. You know, the lawman. Yeah. Uh, That one fell apart when John Landis killed people making The Twilight Zone. Uh, That's good. He is a bad person. At that point, Walter Hill was hired as a director, and he hired Warren Beatty to star in the movie. By this point, like, pre-production's underway. They've started building sets. But Beatty and Hill kept getting in fights because Warren Beatty wanted the movie to look like this, and Walter Hill wanted a, like, realistic, violent film. They eventually both left the project, Universal let the rights lapse, and then Beatty bought the rights. This is so complicated, and I'm so unsurprised. Right, yes. Beatty is famously difficult, even in things that he put together himself. Like, as this is going on, he's also making Ishtar, he's producing it, Elaine May wrote and directed, and he... Told her from the beginning, like, I want to make an Elaine May movie, let's make this happen, and then fought her every step of the way. He is, like, so difficult. <laughs> and you just, I, people can't keep getting away with this shit. <laughs> I mean, he kind of doesn't, right? He's only made one movie this century. True. I would love to watch him and Annette Benning hang out. I mean, the main thing people know remember him for this century, probably, is saying the wrong movie at the Oscars. Right. That's the most notable thing he has done in the 21st century. So Beatty buys the rights. He convinces Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner, who are running Disney at the time, to make the movie for him. They briefly try to get Martin Scorsese to direct it. (laughs) Instead, this year, Martin Scorsese makes a little movie called Goodfellas. Goodfellas, more like good choice. Yeah. As you said, the big condition for Disney was that any cost overruns during shooting would be taken out of Beatty's cut of the money. Uh, the movie was greenlit with a $25 million production budget that wound up somewhere around $46 million, And advertising put the budget over $100 So that's what I was talking about with the... A, t- a terrible choice. Yeah, the advertising being completely out of control. My favorite marketing thing that they did was they printed up Dick Tracy t-shirts with like the movie's logo and sent them to theaters. And they were like, you can sell these t-shirts instead of a ticket. So if somebody buys the t-shirt... That counts as their ticket to see Dick Tracy, which is just a more expensive way to get somebody in the door. Yeah, uh, for a movie they haven't seen yet, so why would they know if they want the t-shirt? Again, the kind of thing that you think makes sense if you're modeling it after Batman, where like, sure, people will wear a shirt with the Batman logo on it. Yes, because they're already like, it's already an insanely recognizable logo. It makes sense outside the context of the movie. Yeah, I mean, you still see, uh, it's those shirts exist today still. Yeah. People were counterfeiting those shirts. When Batman Returns came out, they put, like, this special (laughs) holographic thing on the tags so you'd know it was real. Uh, what a movie. But anyway, the movie, like I said, it actually does okay theatrically, but not compared to its massive production budget. Like, it's the ninth biggest movie of the year. But Jeffrey Katzenberg, within, like, a couple months, sends this 28-page memo to all the executives being, like, as a studio, we have, like, succumbed to an arms race in costs. We've let things get completely out of hand. Dick Tracy's the ultimate example, but it's not the only example. We've got to rein in our costs. And so, while Disney had talked about making Dick Tracy a franchise, including, like, they fully designed a Dick Tracy ride for the theme parks called Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers. They're like, never mind, we're cutting our losses with Dick Tracy. Warren Beatty still has the rights. Around, like, 2002, Tribune Media, the, like, company that published the comic strip, tried to claim that the rights had reverted to them, and they told Disney, like, hey, we're gonna make make a Dick Tracy TV show. We're gonna be, like, the Dick Tracy of Smallville. Okay. And Disney was like, that's not an us thing. Talk to Warren Beatty. (laughs) And Beatty and Tribune spend much of the 2000s fighting over which of them has the rights to Dick Tracy. And Beatty insists that his original contract from 1985 guaranteed him the right to make a second movie and did not establish a timeline in which that had to happen. Okay. Is there like a standard timeline usually that would lead to the lapsing of the rights? Like It's It's normal for there to be a timeline. Okay. I'm just curious like I'm curious what leg the Tribune media is standing on. More than 10 years had passed and generally the rights would lapse within that span. Okay. But it'll vary from contract to contract. But if you don't use them for 10 years certainly the rights should lapse. But Beatty's like I have the right to make a second movie. I mean, if they fail to include that in the contract, that's on them. And that's always Beatty's line. He's like, they haven't paid attention to the details. Like, my position is clear. In 2008, to assert his claim to the rights, Warren Beatty writes and directs a special. It is a scripted interview between himself and Leonard Maltin. Oh, God. Who you might know as, like, you know, a hundred movies to see before you die guy. Yeah. I grew up seeing him because he did the interviews with George Lucas ahead of the Star Wars Trilogy VHSs that we had. I'm guessing those weren't scripted, though. No. But so yeah, this is a scripted interview between Leonard Malton and Dick Tracy. My god. Oh, and it was also shot by, I believe, three-time Academy Award winner Emmanuel Lubezki. Oh my god. And the special, which is about 30 minutes, I also watched this, is Malton and Dick Tracy. Talking through Dick Tracy's life, um, how it is that he looks so good at age 107. The answer, by the way, is uh, SP, small portions, also pomegranate. And Dick Tracy makes it very clear in there that Ralph Byrd is his favorite Tracy, but Morgan Conway is a very fine actor, and that Beatty just didn't get it. Beatty turned his life into a musical comedy, and that's ridiculous. Crime is serious. But of course, also, Beatty is kind of a knee-jerk liberal, and Dick Tracy's more of a conservative. My God. A judge in 2011 said, like, yes, this is indication that Warren Beatty intends to use the rights that he has a legal claim to, so he gets to keep the rights. And then, in February of 2023, TCM quietly put on its schedule the 40s RKO movies, and smack in the middle of the run, Tracy zooms in. And Tracy Zooms In is another 30-minute special. It is a Zoom conversation. Between Dick Tracy, Leonard Bolton, and Ben Mankiewicz of TCM. My god. It is again written and directed by Warren Beatty. And in this one, when Tracy alludes to his falling out with Warren Beatty, Leonard Bolton pulls out his phone and calls Warren Beatty into the meeting. So it is a four-way conversation. It's Leonard Bolton, Ben Mankiewicz, Dick Tracy, and Warren Beatty talking again through the history of the character. My god. And in it, like... Beatty keeps teasing, like, yeah, we probably should do another movie. Maybe we gotta cast somebody younger, but, like, there probably should be another Dick Tracy movie. Oh my god. <laughs> this is so weird. They're so strange. Both of the specials are on YouTube. I sh- sh- watch those. Just, like, search up Tracy Zooms In and give it a watch. This is so weird. They're pretty redundant to one another, so you really only need to see one. Okay. That sounds right. What a weird guy. He's a strange man. But so that was kind of, I watched Tracy Zooms In right before we started recording today. So that was the end of my Dick Tracy run. But probably not actually, because I'm probably going to watch the fourth RKO movie and maybe he will try out the serials. This is like when I read John Carter and came into that episode being like, we got to talk about how to do Barsoom right. Yeah, you're now more into Dick Tracy than the movie. <laughs> I've been Tracy Pilled. <laughs> yeah, well, Tracy Pilled is horrifying. I'm into it. I will say, I don't think this is why I've ranked the movies, but implicitly my, my rankings of the movies line up a little bit with how good I think they are to Tess Trueheart. We haven't gotten to her yet because we've not hit the romance yet. Tess Trueheart, incredible. Yeah, I just feel like I love Glenn Headley. Like, I will always love Glenn Headley for what she does in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And I just think this movie doesn't have the room for her to be as great as she deserves. It does not utilize her well at all. But the scenes she does have are, like, she's elevating what she's given in a way that I find very compelling. Which is kind of what every Tess Trueheart actress has to do, because they're never given enough. Tess Trueheart, the most on-the-nose name for a love interest of any sort of comic that I have come across. Right, it's a great comic book name. My favorite Tess Trueheart is Anne Jeffries, who played the character in the Morgan Conway movies in... Nineteen forty-five, Dick Tracy added. Dick Tracy versus Q Ball, in part because in Dick Tracy versus Q Ball, she like gets to be involved. Like every time you see Tess Trueheart in anything, her deal is like, Dick, I feel like we should like hang out, have a date, have a nice time, and he's like, Ah, justice calls, I must leave you. And in Dick Tracy versus Q Ball, they need a woman to go undercover, and so she gets to be part of the mission. Well, that's fun. It's great. Whereas here, like, they're kind of lampshading it, where he keeps trying to propose and getting interrupted by calls on his wrist radio. But it's like, let Tess do something! She rocks! I wish she had gotten more to do as part of her, like, damsel in distress moment. This is, I feel like this was in an era where she could have fought back. Yes, and she really doesn't. That said, it is a movie in which the fighting is largely with, like, shooting wild sprays of machine guns. A full Tommy guns. It's so funny that this is the same year as Goodfellas, And I think Godfather 3. I really can't decide if this is like a good movie or if it's just a fun movie. I think it's not a good movie. I think the plot is nonsense. The plot's weak. It is. It's like, there were points where I was like, I'm genuinely not paying attention to what's happening. And I'm still satisfied by my experience because the movie looks so amazing, both in the design and also I do think Beatty consistently finds really interesting ways to shoot it. But Like, I'm looking past what is ostensibly its focus. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember... I, like, don't care about the plot. I care about the performances. I could not explain the details of the criminal plots to you. Well, I don't think we get a lot of details of the criminal plots beyond the fact that he is just extorting money from local businesses. Yeah, I mean, just all the, like, convolutions of what's going on with Pacino, what's going on with Madonna, what's going on with Dick Van Dyke. I love how Pacino is a villain because he's going after small mom-and-pop places. Yeah, that's what makes him evil. I just, I like, I couldn't care about the plot. I just loved, like, seeing everything that happened. Yeah, it was great to look at. And again, Madonna performs Stephen Sondheim-written songs with Manny Pretty Katainen. regularly. Pretty Like, I more than there, I expected. I assumed there would be, like, two songs. And they're all good. I'm not surprised this got a Best Song Oscar. Yeah, it it won the Oscar for Original Song. I tried looking up the video. Unfortunately, Steven Sondheim was not at the Oscars that year. Boo. It also won, I think, very deserved Oscars for Art Direction and Makeup. Agreed. Those are the things I liked about the movie. Yeah. Art Direction, Makeup, Original Songs. <laughs> you know what? That is true. It was also nominated for Sound cinematography, costumes, and supporting actor for Al Pacino, who was also BAFTA nominated and Golden Globe nominated. So this was like a real campaign. That I don't re- I don't know. I I don't know exactly what other movies like were competing, but I find this hard to believe. I don't know enough movies in 1990 to like pick who I think should have gotten it. I think honestly what might have happened is this is the Godfather Part 3 year. And he wasn't getting it in Best Actor. Okay. And I think this was a like a big year for Pacino. We can slot him somewhere and maybe it'll be like on the side. That's fair, but it's still weird. I don't know if I'd call this an Oscar-worthy performance, even if it was I, very fun. I would not. <laughs> yeah. Um, I could talk about Dick Tracy for hours, but I'd... I would just be talking at you. <laughs> yeah. This is one I'm really uh <laughs> not at the level you are. Oh, really? You're not? You're not ready to talk about Coffeehead? I am not. (laughs) Coffeehead, I just know, as a concept. He is not in any of the movies. But I think, given that, we should probably talk about the romance of Dick Tracy. It is a very crucial part of the movie. Absolutely. We've got Tess Trueheart, played by Glenn Headley after Sean Young was fired. We should note, Sean Young says that she was forced out for refusing to date Warren Beatty. Isn't she, like, a huge anti-vaxxer now? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I just remembered where I originally, I think, heard about this movie. It is in the You Must Remember This series about Madonna's relationships. Okay. Beatty says that Sean Young's story is false, that she was just miscast and he felt bad having to fire her. The reason I believe Sean Young is, one, Sean Young has a long history of being put in situations like that. Yes. And, two, Beatty did date Madonna, who got the role of... Breathless Mahoney. They started dating after the film started filming, though. Right. So, like, if anything, it would have been a a ploy to date her. That's what I'm saying is, I'm saying Beatty was looking to date someone on this production. If you take Sean Young's story, he tried dating Sean Young. Yeah. When she turned him down, she lost her job. And then he dated somebody else involved in the production. I believe that. I also think there is a chance that Madonna came in and said, I will do this for cheaper. And Warren Beatty was worried about having to take money out of his own pocket. I mean, it almost seems like you're suggesting Warren Beatty was so glad to have cost savings that he was like, Madonna, I will do whatever you ask. (laughs) Yeah, because Madonna, Madonna pushed to get the role, like even after it was cast. But again, they're playing different characters. Sean Young was cast as Tess. That's right. I got confused. All right, Mark, I think you should uh, take us into the romance of Dick Tracy. So point one is the establishment of Tracy's current relationship with Tess, which is Tess wants Tracy to take a promotion to be chief of police that he has been offered to get him off the streets so that he is in less danger and she can spend more time with him. Right. So that he will no longer constantly ditch her at the drop of a hat. In every dinner date we see them on, he just leaves. And Chief Brandon says you'd make a wonderful chief of police. Desk job. What's so bad about a desk job anyway? You think if you sit at the desk you're playing it safe. But Tracy, if you were not in the street every night risking your neck, you could have a wife. I mean a life! Nobody's gonna put big boy Caprice behind bars sitting behind a desk. Tracy, you said you're gonna take a day off tomorrow. Hmm? Hmm, come on. There's a thing in one of the RKO movies where she's trying to throw him a surprise birthday party and has deliberately taken the phone off the hook so that nobody will be able to call him. And in the interim, like, he gets home while she's still setting up in another room, and he puts up the phone on the hook, and it immediately rings. My god. I don't know how she does it. I would have just left. Justice for Tess. Tracy is resistant to do this, and he doesn't want to take this job because he doesn't want to be behind a desk. He wants to be on the streets! He wants to be on the streets fighting crime. He believes he's the only one that can pull it off, and... Even during this conversation, he leaves because his wristwatch radio tells him there's a crime happening. What crime is happening, I can't really tell you. No, it's hard to track exactly what's going on in the movie, but it looks great while it's hard. (laughs) This brings us to point two, which is the introduction of Breathless Mahoney. Breathless Mahoney, of course, is played by Madonna. She is a nightclub performer at the Underground Casino. The Underground Casino was owned by someone named Lips, who... Tracy is trying to bust. He's looking for a witness to Lips's crimes. While that's happening, what is it? Big Boy Caprice? Yep. Um, Big Boy Caprice. Al Pacino. Al Pacino, like, steals the club from Lips and kills Lips. So while looking for Lips, Tracy comes to the club and meets Breathless Mahoney, who is very flirty. I think Lips Manless is dead. And I want you to tell me who killed him. Or maybe you weren't on his side. Whose side are you on? The side I'm always on. Mine. No grief for lips? I'm wearing black underwear. You know it's legal for me to take you down to the station and sweat it out of you under the lights. I sweat a lot better in the dark. She immediately starts trying to bang him. She comes out in a transparent black robe. She's only wearing panties underneath. So already you're like, oh, we've got Madonna. <laughs> like Madonna's like approaching nudity in this movie. She's a full Madonna. Yeah. And she immediately is throwing around stuff like, oh, I sweat a lot better in the dark. You can't tell if you want to hit me or kiss me. And he is stuck dealing with her because she's the only witness to the crime. And again, she is just coming on so strong. So strong. Which then kind of brings us to point three. All right. Well, he goes, he goes home and immediately just, like, makes a show of kissing Tess. Right. Because he is tempted, but still loves Tess. Because exactly. it's Madonna showing up, mostly naked. But this kind of brings us to point three. Because, like, the relationship was always kind of, from this point on, balance between Breathless and Tess. Like, it all kind of happens simultaneously. Because Tess's plotline in the background is, like, other points with Tess are just the same as point one. Okay, except the one thing that happens after this, one is the two of them start sort of adopting the kid. And also, as they take the kid on, like, a montage of eating tons of food, at the end of that day, he tries to propose to her. Look, I, I, I wasn't thinking about you living alone as much as I, I, was, I was thinking about me living alone. I mean, to walk out! Chase Are hey, you alright, kid? Yeah. Thanks for the tip. He's like, so Tess, you live alone. And she's like, Yeah, I do. I like living alone. And he's like, Yeah, I I do too. We have that in common. We both like living alone. And so if if we have so much in common shouldn't we and she just immediately says yes and so it's like a half proposal but then some criminals drive by and start shooting at them so the conversation ends my god i did not think about the fact that in a movie set in the 30s moving in together would be a proposal and it's not just him proposing that they move in together which is no he's proposing marriage which is my modern brain oh i was just like that's the next step in the relationship is you move in together so then while the crimes are happening Breathless comes to Tracy's apartment to try and seduce him again in exchange for assisting with the investigation. She has a couple of arrivals like this. There's a point where she shows up later in this like dress that looks like it's like falling off her shoulders and is like circling him like Tommy Wiseau's big shark before eventually getting him to kiss her in exchange for testimony. And this is, of course, when Tess walks in. Right. And Tess gets a good zinger in. She says, I'll bet she does some nifty undercover work. She's great. And this is what kind of leads Tess to leave. Tess skips town and- Goes back to live with her mom. Uh Uh-huh. And, like, Dick has no idea where she's gone. Right. She leaves a note, but doesn't explain where she's gone. But she's out of here. And this is kind of what brings us to point four. You know what? I'm now looking back at my notes. She leaves. The kiss is a part of it, but also it's his consistent refusal to, to get the desk job. Because after this, we have the whole montage of breaking down Big Boy's car- Oh, because this is where Bug is now living in the roof of the club, listening right. in on Big Boy Caprice's schemes so Tracy can bust them at every turn. So they're having a lot of success blocking all these schemes. And Tess is like, you're loving this. You're never going to take a desk job. I can't do this. So... The combination of that, basically the baseline of their underlying tension they've had in their whole relationship, plus the kiss, Tess leaves. Tracy's sad and wants to find her, but at the same time, there's big developments in the crime, because we are introduced to the blank, no face, who sounds exactly like in Return of the Jedi when Leia is dressed up like the bounty hunter. Yes, that is very true. But, uh, oop. Uh, spoiler he the blank is (laughs) set up a scheme with 88 keys who is the piano player with mandy patinkin to there's a convoluted plot where they frame tracy for murder and then also frame caprice for kidnapping with tess also somewhere in this window while tess is out of town tracy meets with breathless on a dock yes that's where i was jumping to okay and breathless while meeting says that the only way she'll cooperate is if Tracy says he loves her and he wants her shouldn't be talking to a cop you know what I want I want to hear you say it well, I don't want you to be hurt. don't tell me what you don't want tell me what you do want you want me don't you you're right I do want you in court where you can tell the You're truth. You're lying. You want me the same way that I want you. You want me to take a risk? I want you to take a risk. I told you I'd protect you if you testified. Protect me? It's my ca- job. I don't know about your job. I only know what I feel. If you can't tell me how you feel, Tracy, then I can't trust you. Wait a minute. What do you want me to admit? That I think about you? Okay. I admit it. Testify. You want my testimony? Tell me you want me. If you do that, I'll do anything you say. And uh, he won't because he does want her, but he, he loves Tess too much. Right. And so he decides to do it without her help. And this is then where he ends up in prison. I think, I, I guess I jumped the orders. The Blank's plot is so hard to follow. <laughs> it is incredibly convoluted and it just doesn't really matter. Right. And so we get to like, this is where the plot unfurls. We get to the end of the film where Tracy rescues Tess. From the blank, Caprice shoots the blank, then dies. Yeah, Dick throws, also very Return of the Jedi, Dick throws Big Boy off of a balcony into a bottomless pit. So then he's dead, so Tracy runs over to find out who the blank is, pulls off the mask, and it's Breathless. (gasps) The only flaw in her plan was loving Dick Tracy. This was all Breathless's scheme to take over the enterprise the criminal empire but she had to be willing to shoot the cop and she wasn't yeah she had to be willing to kill tracy and this all ties back to the thematic song more in which she sings about how she only wants more it's a subtle one that one so then we get to a final dinner scene in the diner tracy has the ring he's going to propose it starts the. it's the same beats of like you like living alone i like living alone and then he gets a call at his wristwatch. He runs out to fight the crime, but on the way, he hands over the ring without actually proposing. He tosses it across the room. And then the movie ends. That's Dick Tracy. And then the lights come up in the screening room, and Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner are staring at the screen, and they go, that thing was all sex and violence, and we had planned to release this as a Walt Disney film, and we bragged to the LA Times that we were going to expand what a Disney film could be. But we are not expanding it that much. This is getting labeled with Touchstone. Fair enough. They should have known what they were getting when they cast Madonna. Like, this is, like, peak Madonna sex era, too. Yeah, what year was Madonna's sex? I think it was after this. But, like, this is the lead up to that. I think the Blonde Ambition tour kind of represents her first, like, foray into erotica. Which, yeah, I guess is the... (laughs) That's the album Sex is the Book. Sex came out in nineteen ninety two. So did Erotica. Right. But you also get some great numbers with her in stunning thirties gowns, which inspired a brief trend in interest in thirties style gowns after the movie came out. People were had one hundred percent awareness of this movie. And yet definitely not a one hundred percent viewing. No, but again, it was you know it was the ninth biggest movie of the year. Let's run down that. Number one, Home Alone. Okay. Good. Number two, Ghost. Sexy. Number three, Dances with Wolves. Haven't seen it. Good for Dances with Wolves. That is a three-hour western. Number four, Pretty Woman. Great film. Number five, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Haven't seen it. Number six, The Hunt for Red October. Uh, I watched half of it on TV. Number seven, Total Recall. Haven't seen it. Number eight, Die Hard 2. I've never watched a Die Hard movie. Me neither. Ooh. I Number think we should keep it that way. <laughs> okay. Number 9, Dick Tracy. Number 10, Kindergarten Cop. Oh my god, what an era. Kindergarten Cop could have hit the top 10. Yeah, it made $90 million. Uh, a bizarre year for movies. Yeah. So Mark, do you find the romance of Dick Tracy believable? I think the Breathless storyline to me actually makes more sense than Tess. Because if I was Tess, I would have been out so long ago. Tess is treated so badly. She deserves better. She deserves better. She realizes she deserves better. She should not have gone back. The third RKO movie is called Dick Tracy's Dilemma, and I had really hoped that his dilemma would be what to do when Tess goes crazy from neglect and starts killing people. (laughs) Instead, it was like some jewels were stolen or something. Breathless, though, trying to seduce him, As part of her convoluted scheme to take over the uh, criminal enterprise and then falling in love with the dashing Dick Tracy, I find more believable. Yeah, that's classic noir stuff. And I also find Dick Tracy being attracted to Breathless believable while still wanting to stay true to test true heart. So where would you rate this on a scale of 0 to 10? It's kind of tough. I'm going to go with like a 7. Okay, I think I'm a little lower. Because I do think in the 30s, a woman would be willing to tolerate that treatment more. I have so much love for Tess Trueheart as a character that I'm really indignant on her behalf. That's fair. I also think so much of their relationship in this movie is their management of the kid, who is a literal child that they just like acquire somewhere. I don't remember how. So he witnesses the first murder by Caprice and then steals some stuff. And then Tracy rescues him from an abusive situation, and he doesn't want to go to the orphanage. Right. So Tracy takes him in. Yeah, a lot of the Tracy and Tess relationship is just managing the kid, who eventually becomes Dick Tracy Jr. And that is just so bizarre to me that I have to take it down a little bit. That You know what? I didn't think about that part as much. I, I'm dropping down to like a a six. Okay, I'm going Five. I just find the like the breathless part to me makes makes it make more sense than not. Okay, sure. That's fine. The same score you gave, Big Shark. Look, Big Shark, good movie. <laughs> I am more likely to watch Big Shark again than I am Dick Tracy. Oh, uh, 100%. Do you find Dick or Tess or Breathless dateable? Uh, only Tess. Only Tess. Uh, breathless is a would-be crime lord, and Dick Tracy is extremely neglectful. Yeah. Honestly, this is a pretty easy fairy kill situation. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) The true love triangle test. Will Dick Tracy and Tess Trueheart stay together? I hope not. I think they will, though. I think they will, but Tess deserves so much better. But now they basically have a kid together. I think they did eventually get married in the comics. If you had to date one person from Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy, whom would you choose to date? This is tough. Because everyone's either a cop or a criminal. Both off my list. So I think I'm going to have to go with Tess. Yeah, I was similarly trying to work through that. But I think Tess, Tess is kind of the only answer. Unfortunately, Tracy's actor friend, Vitamin Flintheart, is not in this movie. <laughs> my god. I will send you a picture now of Vitamin Flintheart as played by Ian Keith in the RKO movies. What a baffling name. Oh, boy. He looks like a vitamin. Yeah. I buy it. Uh, Mark, should Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy be adapted into a stage musical? There is already music by Stephen Sondheim, and we now have a finite amount of Sondheim music. I'm not a no. No. I think this could be fun. I weirdly do think they were right to go theme park show with this. I think you could simplify the story a lot, hit the songs, and just do some razzle-dazzle. As someone who learned a lot about Batman lore through going to Six Flags over Georgia. It is a way to introduce people to a property. I think that's what it should be. I think as Disney's Hollywood Studios as a park searches for an identity because it should not just be the IP park, I think they should commit hard back to the magic of the movies by making a Dick Tracy stage show. Sure. Why not? That is definitely the direction that theme park is going and not Star Wars. Oof. It was so fun when I went as a kid, when it was still MGM Studios, and there was a Aerosmith-themed roller coaster. Okay, that's still there. Oh, thank God. That was the first roller coaster I went on with loops. It's a good roller coaster. Because I will always remember my sister asking the guy at the stand, are there any loop-de-loops? Because it was the first trip either of us had ridden roller coasters. It It was Space Mountain. And the guy goes, no, 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 no. There's three. (laughs) There are no loops on Space Mountain. No, uh, sorry. At Rock and Roller Coaster, since we'd only done Space Mountain, she asked if there were loop-de-loops. Sure. And he goes, no, 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 no. There's three. And apparently, (laughs) Suzanne and I both, like, went pale, according to my parents. Fantastic. And that one has such a good picture that we bought it. I wonder if my mom still has it. Of my parents, hands up, screaming in joy, and me and Suzanne clutching white knuckle onto the (laughs) handles, both terrified. There was a period where I was hitting Disney frequently enough, especially when I lived in Florida, where I knew where most of the cameras were. And that's always a good time. That was me at Six Flags over Georgia and at the Universal in Singapore. Where we rode The Mummy so many times, because when uh, Universal Singapore first opened, The Mummy was the only real roller coaster. They were still building the Battlestar Galactica one. Um, wow. Great roller coasters. But we learned where The Mummy once was well enough that by the end of the day, we were posing for it. Good. So there's one where it's like, I'm pretending to punch my friend who has like whipped her hair back. In the wind, so it really looks realistic as other people are looking on screaming. We did a Charlie's Angels one and Good. bought none of them. Of course not. Theme well, parks are Well, okay, great. so w- where we've landed is they should make, not on Broadway, but they should do Dick Tracy as a theme park show. They should build the Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers ride and just commit hard into all of this to be ready for when Beatty eventually makes his new Dick Tracy movie. The only amusement park musical with songs originally written by Steven Sondheim. Exactly. All right. I think that does it for Dick Tracy. I'm glad we added it to the schedule. I am glad to have been Tracy-pilled. It's been a lot of fun. A wonderful entry into the month of October. Next week, we're doing another throwback genre, this time to the gothic romance. Oh my god, I forgot that was next. I can't wait. More is gonna... Ugh. Oh, I can't wait until she watches this movie. Next week, we're watching Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. I can't wait to talk about this. I love a bleeding house. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at Love Love pod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Dick Tracy? I think being very clear about your wants and intentions can help a relationship settle into where it's going to be. I think Tracy and Tess spend a lot of the movie in a weird limbo because Tracy keeps hemming and hawing about his proposal, but the relationship between Tracy and Breathless Mahoney is always very clear. She's like, I want to have sex with you. And they can engage based on that mutual understanding. See, my advice was also based on clarity, which is wear a mostly clear black robe when you want to seduce someone. (laughs) Sure, you know, it works. Uh, All right, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about Bye, I'll see later, but love I'll have out loud. This time I'm not only getting them holding my